Well, it's good for me to be back here in Boise. We went to uh, Los Angeles to spend Christmas with my wife's family, and uh, we're planning to come back Wednesday night, but the fog kept us down there, so we had to rough it and go to the beach Friday morning and sunbathe and <laughs> play in the surf, but it is good to be back here in the cold weather. <laughs> Feels a little bit more like Christmas this way. Remember another time we were visiting the relatives, and this time we were in Houston. On that occasion, had a chance to talk with one of my uh, mother-in-law's business associates who came uh, by the house for a visit. We got in the discussion of religion, and I started telling him who Jesus Christ is and what he can do for one's life. And he responded by saying, well, I don't really feel a need in my life. I feel very satisfied with the way I am and what I have from life. I explained to him that one can feel satisfied and yet deceive himself and not face up to his own inadequacies and needs. But even in addition to that, we do have an eternity. And beyond this life, we have to face God and face his judgment whether we uh, like it or not. He responded by saying, well, you know, I believe Jesus Christ is going to come again. But you know what? I think he's going to be a real swinger. He says, when he comes again, I think it's going to be like a big cocktail party. And he's going to come up and slap you on the back and say, hey man, how's it going? Well, this man, this man's understanding betray a very uh, uh, real misconception as, as to who Jesus Christ is and how we should relate to him. And yet, I think there are uh, pieces of his feeling that are all too common in our world today. So I'd like for us this morning to look at Matthew chapter 3 and learn from John the Baptist and his message and come to a better understanding of God ourselves. Let me begin by reading the first two verses of Matthew 3. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew and his Gospel has now skipped about 30 years uh, up to the time in which Jesus is, is 30 years old, uh, approximately, and he begins with the, here with the ministry of John the Baptist. And John begins his preaching to the people of Israel at the time, and he begins with the proclamation, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by that he means that he expects the Messiah to come and appear in the human scene to set up his kingdom, and to judge all men. He didn't understand at this point yet that there were to be two comings of the Messiah, and he expected that when the Messiah came, then the judgment would begin. And he says the only appropriate response in light of that is repent. Now, there's a great deal of misunderstanding as to what repentance is. Many people feel that simply a feeling sorry for your sins but our English word repentance comes from the prefix uh, re, which means to do something again, and the Latin verb pintare, which means to think. We get our English word pensive from it, somebody who's in a thoughtful mood. And it means to have a whole reorientation of your thinking, to change your whole attitudes and perspectives and direction in life. And the Greek word for repentance is, is much the same. It's metanoia which has the, pre the prefix meta, which means a, a something to change something, and noia, which means mind. It refers to a whole change in one's mind. 
It's not simply an emotional state of sorrow, but a whole reorientation, a whole transformation of one's perspective. And John says, in light of the coming of the kingdom of God, we as men must repent. Now, it still doesn't make uh, a lot of sense to us probably exactly what this reorientation is to be, but we find in the next several verses a, a fuller description of what repentance is. In verses 3 and 4, we see that repentance is a, really a preparation for relationship with God. Let's read these verses. For this, John the Baptist, is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, in which Isaiah predicts that there would be one coming in the future, preparing the way for God's coming to humanity. And his message would be, prepare the way of the Lord. Now the word that's translated paths here in the, in the original Hebrew that Isaiah wrote means uh, really a highway, a raised smooth highway. Now, if you remember Isaiah's uh, passage there, he says, the verse immediately following, every valley will be lifted up and every, valley, every mountain and hill will be brought low. It was not unusual for uh, people of the ancient world when they were expecting a king or emperor to come to their city to think that they needed to roll out the red carpet, so to speak. Instead of simply a red carpet, what they do is make or prepare a special highway for this king or emperor uh, to enter the city on. So John is saying in, in the same sort of way, uh, fill in the valleys, chop off the mountains, make a, a, a smooth, level highway. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare for his coming into your life. He says that's what repentance is. He doesn't mean that we are to, uh, that we have to clean out all sin in our life, because that's really impossible. But what he's talking about is a reorientation, a turning from sin and a turning to God. Let me illustrate something of what this is. Suppose that the leaders of Iran today were to get very nervous over the Soviet uh, intervention in Afghanistan, their next-door neighbors. And suppose because of this they came to the United States and said, we would like to enter into a mutual defense treaty with you. Well, that would be ridiculous at the present time. Be ridiculous because we're on hostile terms with Iran. We would not consider that kind of uh, treaty with them unless they first do something to clear up the hostage situation. And they're taking over of our embassy. In the same sort of way, we, when we turn to God and, and reach out our hand to him, have to put away the hostility. We can't just simply come to God and say, well, God, I really don't like the prospects of hell and I'll make a deal with you. I'll believe in you and you give me a ticket to heaven, okay? That's not enough. It's not enough to simply come to God and say, okay, God, I want from you forgiveness and a new life, but I'm not going to give up being grouchy and sleeping with my neighbor's wife and cheating on my income tax. These are things I want to retain control of and I want to maintain these practices. We can't do that because sin, any sin, is a form of rebellion against God. 
We can't on the one hand be shaking a fist in rebellion, say, I want to live life my way. At the other hand, be reaching out our hand to God and say, but with the other hand, I'd like to accept your gifts. Repentance is that turning. It's the turning from our hostilities. It's a submission of the life to God as we, uh, as we put away the past and we turn to him with our whole life. In verses 5 and 6, we see something else of what repentance is. First of all, let me comment in verse 4. Skip that. In verse 4, it says that John had about him a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. If you look in 2 Kings 1.8 and Zechariah 13.14, you'll find that, that this was the dress that was characteristic of an Old Testament prophet. John was aligning himself with these prophets and with their message. And they, too, had much the same message. They said to their people, it's not enough simply to come to God with some external form of worship or mere lip service. They said you have to come to God and bring him your whole life. Repent. Turn from your self-centered ways and open yourself up to him. And John is simply repeating that type of message. As he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Now in verses 5 and 6, we learn something additional about repentance. We learn here that it includes a confession of our sin. Then Jerusalem was, uh, was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. It's not really possible to come to Jesus Christ as Savior without a confession of sin. It's not enough to simply say, well, I've done a few things wrong, I've made a few mistakes, but after all, God, to err is human, to forgive is, di is divine. I've done my part, now thou do thine. It's not satisfactory. We must come to God and say, God, I realize that I have transgressed your holy law. Because God is not like he's pictured in the movie, Oh God, you may have seen a couple of weeks ago. There God is portrayed by George Burns a little kindly old man who smokes a cigar and wears a golf hat. And you wouldn't think that that, that type of person would make any kind of demands uh, upon mankind. He would not require us to do or be anything. He's just a nice guy to go and talk to. His message is simply, well, I think I've probably done a pretty good job in making the world do the best you can. That's all I ask. Rather, God is a God who is holy. And his laws are, are there because they're right and they're true. And he wants us to live up to them because they're right for us. It's the way he's created us. And because he is a holy God, he takes those laws seriously and asks us to live up to them. And our falling short of those is not just some little human quirk, but it's really a violation of, uh, of the character of the God of the universe and therefore something that we need to deal with. And John is saying to these people, come, repent, and be baptized. Now, baptism, for the Jew of the first century, meant only one thing. When he thought of baptism, he thought of proselyte baptism, which is the baptism of uh, a Gentile convert to Judaism. Because one converting to Judaism would, would not only undergo circumcision, 
but he'd also be baptized as a sign that he was washing away his Gentile impurities. Notice in verse 5 who it was who was coming to John the Baptist. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And he was saying to these Jews, you Jews who think that you have it are just as dirty as those Gentiles. You too need to confess that you are sinners. You need to be cleansed of, of that sin by God's grace and mercy. A third component of repentance we find in verses 7 to 10. We see there that true repentance calls for a changed life. Matthew writes, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise from these stones children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is saying here that if we repent truly, it calls for a response from our life. It's not enough to come out of curiosity as the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. John says they're just like a bunch of snakes fleeing from a forest fire. They want to get away from the wrath to come. He was recognizing that when the kingdom of God came into this world, it would mean that God's wrath, the wrath of his judgment, would be poured out upon those who were unrepentant. The Pharisees, he said, just want to get away from the wrath. But he says, if you truly repent, then bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. He says that the judgment has already, has already begun. It's as if an, an axe is laid at the root of the trees and God is inspecting all of the trees. And those that are not bearing fruit, he's going to chop down. Now you may be one who says, well, I know that I'm not really living it, but I know that I'm a Christian. A number of years ago, I asked Christ into my life and I realize I'm not living it right now, but I know I'll get to heaven. Well, John's word here to us all is don't be so sure of yourselves. He says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says it's not enough to have the kind of faith that uh, says, Well, I believe in God, but I won't give up my life. He says the true kind of faith, the saving faith, is that which is accompanied by repentance. And accompanying with, with that accompanying that repentance is a changed life, a reorientation that that brings about fruit in the life of the of the repentant party. Remember when I was in college, I worked for a couple of years in the Young Life Club. Remember one high school student named John who went to a Young Life camp, heard the message of the speaker that that Christ could be his friend and fill his needs for loneliness and fulfill his inner anxieties and problems and save him from all these things. And John prayed a prayer at that camp to ask Christ into his life. He was very excited about Christ for a number of weeks. I started taking him to church 
And uh, the first time I did, the uh, preacher was preaching through a, a series of messages on the Minor Prophets. He was speaking that night about Obadiah. And John said, well, gee, I didn't know that God was like that, judging sin and, and uh, being angry at people for what they've done. Well, if that's the kind of God that the Bible talks about, I don't want any of it. And from that point on, he completely turned off to God. Whenever I went over to his house to try to encourage him and win him back, he just tried to get me to take LSD with him, which I didn't think was an appropriate way for to make contacts with the uh, unbelieving world. John had a faith. He prayed a prayer, but it wasn't a saving faith. It wasn't the faith that's accompanied with repentance. He said, I believe I'll take all the good benefits, but I'm not going to turn from my self-centered life. What John the Baptist is saying here to us is that real faith, the faith that saves, the faith that brings one into a relationship, a saving relationship with God, is the kind whereby we come to God and say, God, I give you all of myself. And I receive from you all of what you have to give me. This says something a great deal to us, I think, about how we should present the gospel. It's very easy for us to concentrate on simply saying, uh, believe in Jesus, ask him into your life, and he'll make everything wonderful. He'll forgive you. And that's true, and that's an important part. But as John says, that's not all. We must tell people, too, that they have to turn from their old life and come and submit themselves to God. I like to tell people it's a package deal. God is offering you forgiveness for your sins, a new life, a healing of all the hurts you have. You can't win that. You can't buy it from him. But you can get it by, from uh, simply by faith. But the kind of faith that's required is a kind of faith that says, okay, God, I submit to you. You're Lord of my life now. I give you my life to make it over. Now, some people object at this point and say that repentance is not really uh, part of the message of us Christians as ambassadors of Christ. They say it was part of the message of John to Israel, but it's not really our message. Let's look at a couple of verses, a few verses. First of all, Matthew 4, 17. We see that repentance was the message of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to Acts 2, 38. Or else you can just listen if, you're, if you'd rather. Peter, preaching in the day of Pentecost, says, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The Apostle Paul preached the same message. Acts chapter 20. Verse 21, he is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus and, and summing up his ministry and his message to them. And he says, I was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, in Acts 26, Paul summarizes his message to King Agrippa, verses 19 and 20. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring to those of Damascus first 
uh, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So we should be uh, helped by this to see that our message to people also should be repent. It's not just that that uh, God has a nice Christmas package for them, but they must come to God in God's terms. We must come to him with a repentant heart, the turning from our old life, with a giving of our whole selves to him. And that's the kind of faith that changes life and saves men. Well, John had a, an appropriate understanding of Jesus Christ and who he is and how he should relate to him. And therefore, he says in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you in, in water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not even fit to remove his sandals. John had an appropriate view of who he was and who Jesus Christ was. He realized that he was not somebody you could just play games with. He's not somebody that you barter with and bargain with, but rather somebody to submit to. He's one who's worthy of adoration and praise, of great reverence and respect. And John says, I'm not even worthy to take his sandals off. The task of a lowly servant. I'm not even worthy to be a servant in his household. I think that, that we in the 20th century often miss the kind of attitude that John portrays here, the kind of humility, the view of Jesus Christ, his awesome power and majesty as a person. And therefore, sometimes when we pray, we, instead of coming to God and beseeching the King of Heaven, simply chat with him like we were talking on a CB radio. Or when we pray, we, we don't come as suppliants beseeching his mercies, but rather we come demanding that he do this or that for me because my plans are important and this is the way I want things to go. How much we need, I think, John's view of God. I find for myself that I need it. One way in which I see myself lacking is, is uh, sometimes how flippantly I can take sin. Are there times in which I'll struggle against sin and fight against it, resist it, and conquer it by God's power. There are other times in which it kind of slips up and, and before I know it, I've given in. But there's sometimes, and this is what bothers me, in which I say, okay, I know it's wrong to do that or say that, but I want to and I'm going to go ahead anyway. And then I shrug it off after I do it. How much I need, and we all need, I think, John's view of God his view of Jesus Christ. He is one who is worthy of all respect. Before him we should bow. He is one that we should take seriously, not play games with, not treat in a flippant and disrespectful way. But we should see him as, the, as he is the God of the universe. And then John describes in, verses, in verse 11 the ministry of Jesus Christ by saying at the end of the verse, he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now this phrase has often been misunderstood. Many people say that, that this is talking about a baptism of power in our bones that produces fire in our bones and great vigor and, and uh, vitality for God. 
But verse 12 explains what this baptism of the fire and spirit, of the spirit and fire is. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He says this baptism of the spirit and fire is a, is a time of separation of humanity. It's like the separation that a farmer does when he takes his wheat up on a hill and with his winnowing fork tosses it in the air so that the wind can blow the chaff away. It's a separation. For those who are repentant and who believe, they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But those who are unrepentant, who don't believe, they'll be baptized with fire, the unquenchable fire of judgment. And it's this kind of ministry that John sees that Jesus has and therefore has this great respect for him. Now, another part of this that's often misunderstood is is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. If you'll take your bulletin, I put a little something in there to help help us understand this. Many people have thought that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that comes after we become Christians. And Jesus uh, gives us a fuller experience of the Holy Spirit. To understand baptism in the New Testament, I think it will be helpful to see that there are four components of it. That's what we have listed in the bulletin. There's the baptizer, the one who does the baptizing. Secondly, there's the party or person who is baptized. Thirdly, there's the medium of baptism. And this is uh, uh, identified in Greek with the Greek preposition in, en. And fourthly, there's the purpose of baptism the point of it, why it's done. And this is identified in Greek with the preposition uh, ace, E-I-S. Now we can understand Holy Spirit baptism better if we'll look at, it, look at it in relationship to three other instances of baptism in the New Testament. First of all, John's baptism, right here in Matthew 3:11. John says in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you in water for repentance. I John the Baptist and the baptizer. You, Israelites, are the baptized, those who come and repent. Water, in water, that's the Greek preposition in, and you may notice here if you have a New American Standard in the footnote or marginal note, it says that that Greek preposition in can be translated in, with, or by. But it's the medium. The water is the person would be baptized in the water, presumably immersed or have the water poured on him. And the purpose of the baptism is for repentance. Use here the Greek preposition ice. Now look at a second instance of baptism. Uh, As long as we're in Matthew, let's look in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. That's the third one on your list in the bulletin. Christian baptism. Matthew 8, 19. Uh, wait a minute, let you find it. Uh, 28, chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus speaking to the disciples says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. So those doing the, bab- the, the baptizer, or baptizers in this case, are the disciples. The party being baptized are the nations. The medium of baptism is not mentioned here, but we know from other passages that it's water. They're being baptized in water. And the purpose of baptism is, is into or unto uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice the purpose is to bring the person into an identification with the Trinity, the Trinitarian God, to bring them into a relationship with God. That's the purpose of this baptism. And the in, in the name of the Father and the Son, is, is the Greek preposition uh, eis, E-I-S. The third baptism is found in 1 Corinthians 10.2. This is a... Uh, only a baptism in a figurative sense. It's a baptism of Moses. When the Israelites were baptized in the, in the Red Sea. That was a baptism in which they didn't get wet. First uh, Corinthians 10, verse 2. You were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, here the baptizer is not identified, but we, uh, the implication is clearly that the baptizer is God. The people being baptized were the Israelites. Uh, the medium, excuse me, the medium of baptism is identified with the preposition in, in the cloud and in the sea. And the purpose of the baptism was into Moses. The purpose was to identify them with Moses, make them part of the, of the nation, uh, make them recipients of the deliverance that Moses would bring about as they pass through the Red Sea and escape from the hands of the Egyptians. The four components. Now turn, now turn back to Matthew chapter 3 again and we'll see if we can understand Holy Spirit baptism. Now many say today that there are two Holy Spirit baptisms. One is Jesus being the baptizer baptizing us into the Holy Spirit, giving us a full immersion in him so we can experience his power and fullness. The second baptism is the Holy Spirit is the baptizer. He baptizes us into Jesus. But as we'll see from looking at this this passage and the one in 1 Corinthians 12, comparing it with these other forms of baptism, we'll see that that interpretation is an error. Uh, Matthew 3.11 again. Jesus Christ, he himself, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus Christ is clearly the baptizer in this case. You, the you who believe, are the recipients of baptism. The medium of baptism is identified with the Greek preposition in, translated either in, with, or by. In this version, it's translated with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit here would be analogous to water, the medium of baptism. And here the purpose of Holy Spirit baptism is not identified. There's no clause with the Greek preposition ace. But in 1 Corinthians 12:13, we have a second passage that explains to us the missing parts. 2 Corinthians 12:13. Paul writes there, "For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, this is a little bit confusing in the English Bible. 
because the translators of our different versions have used the word by rather than the word in or with as they used in, in uh, Matthew 3. But it's the same Greek preposition, in. And so the Holy Spirit here is not the baptizer, but the medium of baptism. Those who, were, those who were baptized would be all Christians. We were all baptized. The medium of baptism is the Holy Spirit, by, in, or with the Holy Spirit. The purpose of baptism is identified with the Greek preposition ace, into one body. The purpose of this, of this baptism then is to place us into the body of Christ. And this passage doesn't tell us who the baptizer is, but Matthew 3 fills in that gap for us. So if we put both these passages together, we see Jesus is the baptizer, believers are the ones baptized, the Holy Spirit is the medium of baptism, and the purpose of the Holy Spirit baptism is to make us part of the body of Christ. John the Baptist is saying in Matthew 3 that Jesus Christ, when he comes, because he didn't know it was Jesus at this point, when the, when the Messiah comes, he will baptize in the Spirit and in fire. All those who are believers will be baptized in the Spirit. They'll be made part of the body of Christ. They'll be recipients of God's grace. They'll be given access to all that God has to give to humanity. Those who are unrepentant will be baptized in fire. The fire of the judgment of God that will fall upon those who, are, who don't repent, who don't turn to God and accept his offer of salvation and grace. Well, that's what spirit baptism is. It's the initiation into the body of Christ, the making the uh, introductions that we can have a part of all God's blessings for us. And John says that this one who is coming is going to be a mighty person whose feet I am not, uh, whose shoes I am not unworthy, I am unworthy even to take off. I am not worthy to even take off his shoes, he says. Because he will be one with the mighty and fantastic ministry. He will baptize those who believe with the Holy Spirit. Those who don't, he will baptize with fire, the fire of judgment. John recognizes that in light of the magnificence of the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, he is simply a humble person. He must bow before his presence. In verses 13 to 17, this coming one comes to John the Baptist. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We learn from the Gospel of John in the first chapter that John the Baptist didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah yet. When Jesus came to be baptized, he didn't yet know he was the, the coming one. But he knew when he saw the, the dove descend from heaven and light upon his shoulder. But John, even yet, recognized that Jesus was more righteous than he. 
Jesus was John's cousin. They knew one another, at least somewhat, before Jesus is coming to be baptized. And he says, no, but I have need to be baptized by you. You are more righteous than I. And Jesus says, no, it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness that I be baptized. Not that Jesus had any of his own sin that he was repenting of. But he wished to identify himself with sinful humanity because in a few short years he would take the sins of humanity upon his back. And therefore he entered into this baptism of repentance to identify himself with us. And after he was baptized, the voice comes out of the heavens. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At this point, Jesus had not preached a sermon, not healed a cripple, had not died for men's sin. And yet, nevertheless, God says, I am well pleased in this one. Why was God well pleased? Well, he was well pleased because though Jesus had performed no public acts of ministry at this point, nevertheless, he, he had fulfilled all that God had planned for him up to that point. And there's an important lesson here for us. We might not have acts of public ministry to do at particular times. And yet we too can please God by fulfilling all that he calls us to do, even if those things seem menial and routine to us. I find that if I'm preparing a sermon, I realize it's a, it's a spiritual exercise and I pray and think and give myself to it. And yet I find that on a vacation like this last week, it's very easy for me to slip into an attitude that well, nothing that I do really is that important. And yet, I find from the scriptures that everything I do is important because I'm God's man on assignment in this world. The same is true of each of us. We are God's men and God's women. And therefore, everything we do is important. We can be pleasing to God. The normal, everyday tasks of life, by living them out in a, in a righteous way, by walking in the Spirit, and we can be pleasing to God, even as Jesus Christ was, to his Father. Or we have the opportunity of not being pleasing to God, as we instead walk in selfishness and dependence upon the flesh, forget about God and lose awareness of him. Well, Matthew's message to us in this chapter is that God is one who, whom we must respect. When we come before him, if we're still searching for God, we must come with a faith that brings with it repentance, a turning from the old life, a whole reorientation of life, a transformation of our thoughts and attitudes, directions and goals. So we make God the Lord of our lives when we come to him. For those of us who are already believers, the message for us is much the same. God is still one that we must respect. He is still one that we should not play games with. We must come before him daily, turn from the old life, turn to him and lay hold of him and all the resources he has to offer us. He offers to us a newness of life, a life that's full and exciting, rich and rewarding, because he's part of it. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we bow before you this morning. You who are the mighty one, the exalted God and creator of us all.
Lord, we confess that it's very easy for us to treat you flippantly, to take you for granted. It's very easy for us to think that we are the center of the universe rather than you. Lord, help us to understand who you are, to see ourselves properly, not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Help us to be as John was when he said, I'm not even worthy to untie the shoes of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're not worthy to be your servants. We're not worthy to know you, to talk to you, to receive any of your graces. But we thank you that you have condescended to love us, to pour your grace upon us. We thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.